episode of Shadow Talk, a cyber threat intelligence and information security podcast brought to you by Digital Shadows, a ReliQuest company. My name is Nicole, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Ivan and Chris. How are you guys doing? I'm doing really good. Thank you very much. Uh, really nice to be on the other end of the spectrum. So as a contributor this week, in a couple of weeks since I've been on the podcast. So uh, thanks for picking this one up, Nicole, and for having me on. Yeah, and I'm doing great as well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you guys so much for joining me today. So it's been a short week in the U.S. with Labor Day, but of course, not short on cyber news. There's always things going on in the cyber threat intelligence landscape. Actually, it was announced last week, the IRS disclosed uh, that there was confidential data accidentally made public on their website, and it was due to a misconfiguration. The issue was fixed, but researchers are saying that it potentially could have affected up to 120,000 taxpayers. There's no evidence this, you know, the data was accessed or abused, but specific individuals that are impacted are anyone that is in the U.S. that has filed a 990-T or a 990-T tax form. And these tax forms are typically used for nonprofits, but individual taxpayers can also use them if they have an IRA or a retirement account that is used to uh, invest in an asset that generates income, such as real estate or something like that. So if you fall into that category, I would definitely just be proactive, you know, maybe get some credit monitoring, look out for any follow-on attacks, such as phishing. There was no social security numbers or anything like that involved in the attack. It was mostly just like income information and contact information, but, you know, cyber criminals have done a lot with less. And on the vulnerability side of the house, HP just fixed a critical vulnerability impacting a pre-installed application called the HP Support Assistant. There was a vulnerability that could allow an attacker to escalate privileges on compromised devices. The vulnerability is tracked as CVE 2022-38395. So if you guys have a HP, go ahead and check that out. Also, Zixel, I don't know if I'm ever pronouncing that correctly. It's one of those weird I, <laughs> names I where I'm it, like... I'd call it Zyxel, but yeah, Zixel Zyxel. might be correct, actually, yeah. I'm going to go with Zixel. Uh, this company pushed out firmware to address a critical remote ex- remote code execution vulnerability that's tracked as CVE 2022-34747. And this pat- particular vulnerability impacts three models of their... NAS devices or network attached storage devices, the vulnerability, it could allow an attacker to perform, just as it sounds, remote code execution with a specially crafted UDP packet. Moving on to our first topic this week, there was, I heard on uh, Twitter, actually, there was a huge traffic jam in Russia, and it was caused by an act of hacktivism. Ivan, could you give us an overview of what happened? Yeah, so there's more instances of hacktivism campaigns happening, and uh, these were targeting Russia this time. So the hacktivist groups Anonymous and the IT Army of Ukraine, which is a group made up to support Ukraine in the Russia-slash-Ukraine war. So they allegedly took down the Yandex taxi app and caused massive tra- traffic jams in Moscow. So the hacktivists, they allegedly also sent all taxis to the same location, which caused this entire incident in Roads to be blocked, and, and the roads were allegedly blocked for more 
two hours. Anonymous, they were working together with the IT Army of Ukraine uh, to conduct this attack. I did not see they were working together. That's really interesting. I feel like with the whole conflict in Russia, it's, there's really been this like huge revival of hacktivism, particularly what I've seen is more like distributed denial of service or DDoS attacks. Ivan, have you seen this type of activity continue in the summer? Or would you say it's mostly like this where it's more like pro-Ukraine? Or have you seen a lot of pro-Russia or a little bit of both? Like what's the scene been like going into summer? So there has been a noticeable revival of hacktivism campaigns since the start of the Russia-Ukraine war. A lot of the groups were created in support of both sides. There's the IT Army of Ukraine and Anonymous siding with Ukraine. And then on the other side, there is Killnet, Shacknet, and others. Uh, I would say that the attacks, they have been pretty evenly distributed, but attacks coming from Russia, they are probably making a little more headlines. And that's because Russia, uh, Russian hacktivists, they're setting their targets on multiple countries, uh, not just one. For example, Killnet, they declared war a cyber war on 10 countries, and they have been targeting the critical sectors of these countries repeatedly for months. Uh, and Killnet also has many sub subgroups that are con- conducting the same types of same types of attacks. And most of this activity is just DDoS attacks, but uh, it can have a very big impact if it's targeting a critical sector. Yeah, I saw today actually there was a, a Killnet was actually targeting Japan. Uh, a lot of J- Japanese government sites, which I thought was uh, surprising, at least uh, for me reading that anyway. Do you think this activity will increase, decrease, or do you think it'll stay the same going into the last few months of the year? So my guess is that the activities will match the in- intensity of the Russia slash Ukraine war. So if the war gets more heated, then it's likely that cyber activities will also do the same. And if the war stops, then we could see a decrease in cyber activity. But for now, as there has been no indication that the war will stop anytime soon, I expect that we will continue to see hacktivism to be a consistent threat and a consistent problem for the next few months. And uh, this threat is particularly high for NATO countries and Russia, as well as critical organizations within those countries. Yeah, that's a good point. I I do think it'll probably match the intensity of, of the conflict. And it is also interesting to see how it's kind of moving away from just DDoS into things like this taxi traffic jam incident in Russia. So uh, moving on to our our next topic, the FBI um, just released a joint security advisory with CISA and another organization that I'm now blanking on, but it was warning against Vice Society ransomware group and the increased activity that they've seen targeting the education sector, specifically kindergarten through 12th grade or K through 12 institutions within the United States. And this has been a huge thing, I think, for the last couple of years. But right off the back, I want to see what you guys think. Like, why do you guys think the education sector continues to be such an attractive target for cyber criminals? I guess I can go first. Um, I think I'll just say that education is probably susceptible because they're likely on constrained budgets from a security perspective. And the nature of educational departments, I would imagine, I'm not sure why I think this, but it leads to a fairly open network in which materials are quite readily available to whoever needs it. And there's also, you know, the requirement for students and staff to be logging in remotely. Remote working does represent some security risks 
um, if it's insufficiently managed, you know, which can represent an access vector for, for threat actors. And there's probably opportunities as well for lateral movement to kind of like sister networks from other schools, universities, colleges that have uh, links to that particular institution. Therefore, I guess, increasing the likelihood for payment or other opportunities for the threat group. And of course, when there's PII that's related to you know young people or even children, uh, perhaps that makes an establishment you know more likely to pay, as awful as that is to say. And I'll just end by saying, you know, ransomware groups who do target such institutions are you know absolutely abhorrent, and you know we really should do everything in our power to to help these institutions. I guess you could even consider it kind of critical national infrastructure in a really roundabout way. I know it's not technically speaking, but you know we need to do more to help these organisations where possible. I think well said. I think it's absolutely important. And I like that idea of that it being part of critical infrastructure, but because it is, it is critical to our future. You know, the kids are really the future of the country and they do have limited resources, much like some of these critical infrastructure companies like utility companies and things like that. And specifically, I know having worked in financial fraud before, I know that children are targeted a lot for identity theft because a lot of parents don't have credit monitoring for their kids because, you know, why would you check your kid's credit? Most likely there's not going to be anything. Kids aren't running around with Amazon credit cards. and <laughs> So, I mean, do you guys think that credit monitoring should be on the back to school list this year with all the heightened risk of ransomware? So this is something that was really new to me. I know I messaged you prior to this, you know, kind of questioning it really. I, I I guess so. I mean, in the US, would you have to, to fund that as a as a parent? I assume you would. I, it's not something that's ever crossed my mind, really. But, you know, as you were you were telling me uh, prior to the call, it's it's often, you know, young people's credits that's actually used to fraudulently purchase cars or, or other things. So I guess, you know, it should be something that parents should consider. But I, I imagine you would have to foot the bill for that one. Am I right in thinking that? Yes. Yes. Whether it's for yourself or your family, yeah, you would definitely have to be paying for it, at least for monitoring for any type of changes or things like that. At least for me as a parent, uh, it's something that I always think about just because I think I've been exposed to cases working in fraud before. And I've seen instances where uh, kids are taken advantage. And I know I've heard of a lot of uh, cybersecurity people say as well, like, you know, targets are or uh, schools are great targets for cyber criminals, specifically ones that want to sell the data because they could probably evade detection for a longer period of time because, you know, they're not checking their credit and things like that. Um, so it is something to consider. Um, I know at least, you know, through the pandemic with remote learning, Zoom fatigue, all the ransomware activity, it's been something that I've been thinking about. And I can imagine what it's been like, not only for the schools, but also the the security teams at these schools. Like we said, they have limited resources with remote learning. Their attack surface has probably grown significantly. Their resources have probably not grown significantly. Do you guys think uh, this has become more of a challenge for network defenders in the education sector? Or do you think, or what are some ways that I guess we could reduce the risk of ransomware or or, uh, make them more resilient? what are some tips yeah it comes back to that resiliency piece doesn't it i would say improving identity and access management i think you kind of nailed a lot of them on the head there really but making sure that only the right people are allowed on the right parts of the network that they need to actually do their jobs 
making sure that people are given accounts with only the admin privileges that they need. And of course, that goes hand in hand with removing redundant services, servers, parts of the network that aren't in use anymore. That is a massive problem in business. You know, not just the education sector, it's just a massive problem in business in general in having visibility of what you own and what you actually need to manage. I just can't emphasize how big an issue this is. You know, you can't fix what you don't know exists ultimately. And I guess that again comes hand in hand with like RDP, VPN, other remote services. You know, just please, please, please make sure that these are secure. You know, don't have default or weak credentials. Don't have ports open unnecessarily. You know, this is how they get in. So reduce that attack surface and just make it harder for them. Yeah, I, I agree that sometimes the easy stuff is the most critical stuff. Not every, you know, not everything is going to be a nation state level attack. There's always going to be those low level things. And most of the time, cyber criminals are going to take the easiest road possible because why do extra work if they yeah. don't have to? They're, they're opportunistic in general. You know, we've obviously talked about, you know, big game hunting and things like that, but they are still opportunistic in general. They will take the path of least resistance. And if you have two networks that are being observed, you know, one has got a bunch of holes in its remote services and you can just kind of glide on in there, steal a administrator's uh, credentials, and then you have access to the kingdom. And one which has, you know, defense in depth and, you know, lots of different kind of detection mechanism, uh, mechanisms in place. You know, which one are they going to go after? It's always going to be the formal, right? So just make it more difficult for them. And a lot of that can be achieved by, you know, nailing those cybersecurity hygiene basics, I guess. Yeah, and uh, it kind of brings back to the topic, you know, you it's impossible for you to make yourself resilient enough to the point where you are unhackable, but you have to make yourself difficult enough to hack that if a hacker comes after you, they realize that it's going to be way more work to go through your defenses than somebody else's defenses. And uh, like you guys have been saying, you know, the most, the easy way of getting into a company and the way that a lot of these big breaches have been happening recently is through the simple methods. They are using stolen credentials to get initial access. They are using social engineering to bypass two-factor, etc. They're not going through the hard defenses that you have. They're going through the easy methods. They're going attacking the people. They're attacking weak credentials, etc. So it's important to also be very careful and be mindful of these things as well. 100%. I have to agree with you. On the other hand, I also think, you know, like you said, nobody is unhackable. There's always going to be that opportunistic thing that happens. There's always going to be something that you miss because we're humans and there is just errors. So it's also important to have a plan in place to respond to these types of attacks, a business continuity plan, because if it happens, you know, you want to be able to act fast instead of like sitting there panicking. So I definitely recommend including ransomware response to your business continuity plans in the education sector, really for any sector. So moving on to our next topic, I always like to try to have some type of crypto or NFT topic when Chris is on because I know he uh, enjoys that and he's very knowledgeable on the subject. This one, this next topic is actually, uh, it's really interesting, but it's also kind of concerning. Um, I'm really surprised if this is going to be a new trend. So what happened was researchers discovered uh, a few different NFTs that were created by a terrorist sympathizer. Chris, have we seen anything like this before? And what do you think could be the motive here? So I think this is really super unique and not something that I've 
come across before, um, at least not as specific as this. So the NFT, just for a bit of backstory, um, was visible on one NFT trading website. So NFT being a, a non-fungible token. And it was titled IS News Number One. And it bared um, the Islamic State's emblem. And it was created by a supporter of the group, likely as an experiment to test a new outreach and kind of funding strategy for, for ISIS. And I would just say it's just another example of terrorists of the modern day being incredibly savvy and up to date with emerging technology and kind of methods of marketing as well, which in turn highlights the considerable reach that these groups unfortunately have. Um, I'm sure you remember the days of IS being in control of kind of huge parts of Syria and Iraq and the, you know, kind of utterly disgusting, but ultimately well-made propaganda videos that kind of surfaced when they, they had those territories um, which allowed IS to promote its ideology and attempt to kind of demonstrate that they were a credible and kind of capable force. So while I hadn't seen, you know, I haven't seen anything of this nature before, I'd say it's possible that the technology could be used for these sorts of purposes in the future by by similar groups or by kind of, you know, maybe even hacktivist groups, um, you know, particularly considering the uh, the influence of social media and that kind of balance between free speech and censorship so we might see this again if it does prove successful. Yeah, specifically for the younger generation. But Chris, you know way more about the NFT and crypto scene than me. Is there any type of regulation or censorship for NFTs or is it really just like a free for all? Because I know I saw like one of the NFTs was like, you know, someone teaching kids how to make like explosives, which is concerning. Mm. The, the regulation probably comes on the, the actual platform that it's been hosted on in terms of the, the general space. I would say there's not, not a tremendous amount of regulation, although that's probably going to change. So uh, a non-fungible token is, is basically just a unit of data that's stored on a blockchain, which is obviously a database of transactions um, organized, you know, without the, the need for a, a central trusted authority. So it's, it's decentralized. And the technology first emerged as a means for tracking, valuing, and trading digital assets, but it does have broader applications as well, like, you know, digital concert tickets, uh, branded collectibles, like digital trading cards, valuable items on video games. So like crypto gaming, that's going to be a massive thing in the next few years. Um, heard it from me first. Another example that springs to mind is, I believe, Alfa Romeo had like a car, car service history that was stored on an NFT which helps me as I always lose that paper record you get from the garage. So I, I do have a full service history, but I can't prove it. And I think that they're also offering NFTs for certain classic cars as well, which again proves that kind of ownership and also serves as a record that you have something that's limited. And of course, scarcity of asset can, can really scale its value. And I think the point is that, you know, typically people think of NFTs of like ridiculous stuff like pet rocks in a JPEG or like board ape or something, but it's likely that the technology has got far greater functionality, uh, which will emerge in the coming years, really. And I would say with regards to regulation, you know, I'm not a crypto enthusiast who kind of runs away from regulation completely. Some people think it's only going to hinder development in this space. Um, I think actually it will be a good thing because it will allow institutional investors to actually come on board which in turn will really revolutionize this space and, and make it more valuable for those of those who, you know, who do invest. Um, but with regards to this specific NFT, I would say that there's very little that can be done to actually take it off the internet, um, bar individual service providers and kind of social media providers like blocking it 
And I guess the whole point of the blockchain is that, you know, it's decentralized. It's not controllable by a, sin- a single commodity and that privacy and freedom of speech are, are ultimately kind of founding concepts within this space. And, you know, that's not going to change anytime soon. Yeah. And I think that's something that social media platforms are also dealing with, like that fine line between what's right and what's wrong, who's deciding it, is it bias and and things like that. Um, so I also saw a story in the news about a group of activists uh, attempting to use NFTs to hopefully raise money so they can continue to operate against the government in Belarus. Chris, do you think there's a larger trend happening here with NFTs, either for, you know, uh, pushing outreach or raising funds? I don't think it's a wider trend yet, but it could be kind of like the uh, emerging roots of something that might become uh, more significant in in months or years to come. Uh, I think it's still fairly limited to sort of a handful of cases. But again, as this technology develops and becomes more mainstream, we absolutely could see the use of NFTs to promote certain political or kind of hacktivist messaging. Um, You know, one person I follow on uh, Twitter and YouTube He's a big advocate for NFTs and he's kind of sees the future of NFTs as like advertising in the metaverse, if you catch my drift. So kind of being used to push advertising in like common places where people will will be hanging out. Um, I don't know if you've seen that tragic metaverse advert from from quite a while ago where people hang around the bar. I'll have to link it in. A, but I, I would just say that, you know, having NFTs branding or or messaging in popular places, you know, that's, that's I think, what, what's going to be the future of it, really. It's kind of like making your voice as loud as possible while simultaneously trying to avoid the person, you know, trying to take your microphone away from you. That's what this, this IS uh, supporter is probably doing. Other trends with NFTs, you know, we've probably spoken at quite great length about the link between NFTs and cybercrime or crypto in general. Many actors are going to be pivoting towards targeting crypto exchanges and crypto platforms because they are susceptible. You know, North Korean actors, for example, have have had some great success this year in doing that. Uh, That's something that I will definitely expect to continue for the rest of this year and in 2023. Although I will say since the collapse of kind of um, cryptocurrency prices, maybe starting back in November of last year, um, NFTs maybe aren't quite so valuable as they were before. So perhaps it'd be uh, crypto exchanges that would be more targeted than, than NFT platforms. But, you know, in, in general, I guess a lot of NFTs are seen as art and crime has long been synonymous with art, um, you know, which you listen to a lot of these NFT enthusiasts. That's what they consider it as. And the association is due to the ease in which art is moved, the subjective prices you know, to permit allowances on certain taxes. There's actually been people arrested in the UK this year for tax avoidance, you know, by using NFTs. Some NFT sellers have been linked with wash trading, in which that refers to a transaction in which the seller is on both sides of the the transaction. So they own the selling cryptocurrency account and also the buyer account. And the goal would be to make the NFT appear to be more valuable so they can then sell it onto someone else um, and actually make a profit that way. And again, this is achievable because many of these NFT trading platforms actually fail to provide enough regulation on identification. So this is all a, a common common theme, right? Um, so I would say that there is going to be an ongoing link with crime. I actually did a blog on um, cybercrime and NFTs earlier this year in April. So maybe we should forward that one in the show notes as well. But yeah, I think with this use of NFTs to promote a certain ideology, it is limited at the moment. But like I say, it might become more commonplace as we... Uh, we go forward. 
that's another episode of Shadow Talk. Um, we will put that blog that Chris mentioned in the show notes. We also have a lot of great blogs out this week. Um, if you haven't already checked those out, go ahead and do so. And until next time. <laughs>